We are, Lord willing, going to go through all of Romans chapter 3 today. It is a loaded, loaded chapter. Um, hopefully, you'll see the reason we're going to try to do the whole thing in one sermon. Page 940 in the Bible's in front of you, but before we hear from God's word, let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, what a, what a kindness and a generosity to not just speak to us, but then to have your word recorded in this book. And so might we come to it not merely as ink on a page, but what we know it to be, which is your living and active word that never returns void, that can create life simply by being spoken. Help our souls know how famished they are apart from hearing from your word. And let us come with attentiveness to it, with alert minds and even bodies as we hear your word read. What every single person in this room needs most, truly without exception, whether they've walked with Christ for 43 years, whether they've been gone from a church for 10 and are just coming back, whether they don't yet know who Jesus is and they're asking questions, they say, I don't even think any of this is real. God, what every single person here needs most is to leave this time more impressed and confident in what Jesus has done and more full of hope with what he promises to do when he returns. So Holy Spirit, would you come into this place, lift Christ high, that our hearts might be drawn after him. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, if you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? I already mentioned this fair warning. This is a long text, but more than worthy of our attention. This is God's holy, holy word. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For you've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. 
For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not also the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Feel free to grab a seat. We made it through it together. It is a dense text for sure. Um, One of the unique features of the letter to the Romans written by an individual named Paul who was uh, a church planter appointed by God to start congregations and and to write half of what's known as the, the New Testament, the last part of your Bibles, is how many questions he asks in this letter. There's, I counted 83, there might be more. Um, there's about 15 of them here just in Romans 3. And the questions, at least in the first eight verses, I think we could clump them into two categories. Um, we'll do these quick. One of them we, we dealt with a little bit last week, and then the second question we're gonna deal with a lot more when we get to Romans 6, but I just wanna give you a quick overview Verses one and two, it might be a question like this. What advantage has the Jew, the people that were named after the tribe of Judah, the marked out people of God, what advantage do they have? And then as we follow really at verse five through eight, um, I think a question that all of these are speaking to is maybe a cultural sensibility that a lot of us have is why can't God just forgive people? I'll take the first one. What advantage has the Jew? To see where that question is coming from, you just have to go back to chapter two where Paul, who is Jewish, has come to faith in Christ. He, he talks about the Jewish people, says that there is an advantage, but it's not enough. And here he, he says it again. He says there is an advantage. In Romans chapter nine, he's gonna list out a bunch of advantages. And this one, he says, you have the oracles of God. You have the very word of God. You have his promises. But, but having God's Bible is not the same as knowing the God of the Bible, and then as we go on to these other questions, as verse five and following, this how, why doesn't God just save everyone? But if in our righteousness, it serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Or we can go down to verse seven, but if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Verse eight, and why not do evil that good may come? This is the, the question of someone who's saying like, wait a second, if I get this right, the more I sin means the more that God can forgive, which brings him glory and shows him off as really gracious, so shouldn't I sin more so that his glory is shown off? Or if I lie and show myself unfaithful, but God is still faithful and his truth in contrast to my lie is seen as better, then shouldn't I just go around lying more? Wouldn't that be better? Why can't God, like, why can't God just forgive everybody? Because wouldn't it show that he is a really gracious, wouldn't that bring him glory? And Paul's response back that he will deal with more in chapter six is by no means, may it never be. Their condemnation is just. 
I don't remember who I heard this from, and I'm not going to dive into this a ton because we will do it in Romans 6, but, it, but the, this extreme example helped illustrate the, why that line of reasoning doesn't work for a variety of reasons that we'll look at in Romans 3, but it said, okay, imagine this situation, Judas, one of Jesus' friends that he handpicked to walk with him for years, also known as a disciple. Judas is notorious, though, because he's the one that betrayed Christ to the Roman authorities. And so imagine Judas coming to God and saying something like this. Listen, I know I betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, but look what it accomplished. I mean, Jesus only got to the cross because I was willing to sell my friend out. And when Jesus went to the cross, he could become the savior of all who that would trust in him. So really, shouldn't you thank me for betraying Christ? If I didn't do it, then he wouldn't have gone to the cross. I actually helped Jesus fulfill the scriptures. Response might be something like this. Yes, I used your wickedness for good, but what you did is still wicked. What's behind this sort of questioning is oftentimes uh, pitting against each other of attributes of God. It's God is gracious, and God is compassionate, and God is merciful, and God is long-suffering. Amen. And all those things are so true. God is also just because God is also holy. As we go into this text, we need to bring both of those truths together, his holy love not pitted against each other, but always working in harmony with each other. Now, as we look at verses nine and following, um, last week I mentioned that for each of my kids, the first time I got to hold them, I had a, a verse or a couple verses that, that I'd picked out that I could hold them with, and when they were put in my arms the first time, I would lay my hands on them and I would dedicate them to the Lord in light of those verses. Today, as a church, towards the end of the service, we get the joy of doing family dedications where we're gonna hear from families reading over their kids verses that they have selected. Sometimes people take a long time to come to the verse that they wanna pray over their kids. In 20 years of doing family dedications, I have never once heard anybody use the verses from Romans 3, 12 through 18. Oh, little Susie, no one is righteous. No, not one. Billy, when I hold you, the venom of a poisonous snake is in your mouth. Your feet sure are swift to shed blood. I mean, that's just, these aren't the verses that we would typically go to to mark our kids out. And I'm not recommending that you do that today, that anybody shifts their verses. But to understand the miracle of salvation, we have to at least consider the condition that every single person is born in. There's a little phrase at the end of uh, verse nine that all Jews and Greeks, everyone, are under sin under its tyranny, under its influence, under its curse, under its guilt. Daniel Doriani tells this story. He says, a man awakened with a dreadful headache. And after it lasted for a few days, he, he scheduled an appointment to go see his doctor. He goes to his doctor, and the physician performs a number of extensive tests. And out of, of these tests, the doctor found out that it was a deadly form of brain cancer. But because the doctor's kind-hearted, he really hated the thought of shattering the joy of the man and his family with this diagnosis of terminal illness. So after a sleepless night, he calls up the man and he says, sir, the test clarified the cause of your headaches. And after examining them, I assure you that within a few months, you will feel no pain. Then he hung up the phone. 
He was afraid to be honest about what the real disease was. The term for such false assurance is malpractice, not, not kindness. No physician could continue to practice if they did such a thing. Paul in this text, like a lawyer or a physician, is laying out a case against every single person that's ever existed. Saying you are under sin. Verses 9 through 18 give one of the most condensed summaries of a, a little phrase that theologians use called total depravity. There's a fair amount of confusion on what that is and isn't. This does not mean utter depravity. It does not mean we're as wicked as we possibly could be. It does not deny that everyone, Christians, non-Christians, can create beautiful things and do kind things and, and helpful and, and beneficial things. What the phrase captures is the inherited human condition since Adam, which we'll look at more in a couple weeks in Romans, that we're all born with this slant away from God. That everything about us is touched and tainted and tinted by, by sin. That's what it means to be under sin. That little phrase, it doesn't say under sins. That's, that's true. There's lots of varieties. We, we are really good at sinning in lots of ways. But this is framing something different. It's an, it's, an, it's an orientation of the heart. And you really see it captured in these book-ended descriptions at the beginning of this, this kind of progressive quotation from mostly the Psalms um, that Paul is stringing together. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. And then this phrase, no one seeks for God. And then how it ends in verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. What this is saying is we're not born neutral. We're not born neutral to God. There's not a curiosity or a... The Bible actually uses language like this, that we're actually born with hearts of stone towards God. They don't feel or or we're blind to who he is. Or or, or we're enslaved to sin or we're in bondage. The, The Bible uses language like this, we're dead. Spiritually speaking, all we can do many wonderful things, but that's how we're born, not oriented to seeking and fearing, but ignoring Another letter, Paul says something like, he says this to the church in Ephesus, chapter two, verses one through three, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, and the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and and, and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind." I really felt like this was the perfect text to pick on a Sunday when we're doing family dedications and you've invited your family and friends with you. Um, we see the scope of what sin touches in verses 10 through 18. It touches our intellect, the way our brains work. It touches our words, the things that overflow from our hearts. It touches our behavior. It touches our actions. And Paul here is piling up. I mean, he could have just said the first thing. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks for God. Done. But I, but I really believe he's trying to use this rhetorical device to, to get us to wake up to the woefulness of our condition, to how very sinful we are in light of how very holy God is. Now, I would imagine, um, and rightfully so, there's people in this room saying, Rob, I am not that bad. I'm actually a pretty good person. And I am sure that's true compared to me, maybe compared to the people around you. But that's not the comparison. We're not the standard. God is the standard. 
That's what verse 20 is articulating for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, to be made right in his sight since through the law, God's holy rules comes the knowledge of sin. As we put our lives up against his law, we find out we don't measure up. J.B. Phillips wrote a paraphrase of the New Testament and his paraphrase on verse 20, I think is really helpful. He says this, he says, no man or no woman can justify themselves before God by perfect performance of the law's demands. Indeed, it is the straight edge of the law that shows us how crooked we are. We're gonna look a lot more at the law in Romans 7. Let me give you the words of Christ, though, and I promise relief is coming in just a minute. Matthew 5, 18 through 20, this is the words of Jesus. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot. When it says iota and dot, for those that are really into typography type forms, it's the little tiny serif on the edge of a letter. Or the dot is like the little dot that goes above the eye. I mean, that's how, how, how detailed this is. That's, that's how specific. Like, not even the smallest little details of any of the characters will pass away is what Christ is saying. Won't pass away until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you... Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, for us, Pharisee is a derogatory word that we use towards others. At this time, this was the religious elite. This was the LeBron James, the Taylor Swift, Swifties, we'll get you out of here for the Super Bowl. (laughs) You're all ratting each other out. Um, This is the Mother Teresa of the religious world. I mean, these were the people that were so disciplined and so dialed in in what Christ is saying, that you gotta be more righteous than them. Christ goes on in Matthew 5, and he says things like this. You have heard that you shall not murder, and whoever murders is liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry is liable to judgment. Anyone guilty? Anyone who says you fool is liable to the hell of fire. That's our condition. That's our inability. That's the, the, the sickness that we're born with. But here's the turn. Verse 21 begins with two words that absolutely reverse our destiny and our fortunes. But now. Oh, you're dead. But now. Oh, you're under sin. But now. Those two words change everything. Verses one through 20, it's the doctrine of of sin is now met with the doctrine of salvation. But now, I've shared many times how wonderful and then absolutely terrifying the birth of our first child, Emma, was for Katie and I. And I'm not gonna go into the details. I won't go into extended retelling. But briefly, everything was going great um, until it wasn't. Some point in the delivery, Emma got stuck, and things were becoming really critical and really, really scary. And in, in the hospital room that we were transferred to, more and more doctors and nurses began to pile on. Extra equipment was getting warmed up and, and, and readied, and all the monitors and the things that were on, on Emma and on my, my wife, the, the, the vital signs were all critical. The temperature in the room was frightening. I mean, just it was, it was overwhelming. And I actually began to cry. My wife looked up at me with a lot of concern on her face, looking to me for reassurance. And she just said, is everything okay? And so I lied to her. 
of course I did. I said, no, everything's fine. This is just so beautiful. Inside, the reason I was crying is I thought I was going to lose both of my girls in one moment. But I didn't. Emma was born, and then they, the, 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 the nurses placed Emma in my arms, and I dedicated to the Lord, and I sat in a rocking chair next to, to Katie, and I, I held her hand, knowing that everything was going to be okay. It was a but-now moment. What was so scary was immediately replaced with what was so wonderful, and that's the turn of verse 21. No one seeks for God. None is righteous. But now. That's the gospel turn of this text. The gospel meaning good news, the story of how people that are born not seeking God and not fearing God and not following God can be brought near to God. It's a story of Christ who who came to live as we were meant to live and then took the death we deserved upon a cross as he took our judgment and went to a tomb and then rose three days later. That's the but now turn. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. What this is talking about is that the entire Bible has always been pointing towards Christ. Every sacrifice, every, every ceremony, all the, the, the compositions of the temple and the tabernacle and all the holiness codes. Like if you've ever tried to read your Bibles, so a lot of us, we you know, start the first year, we're gonna start reading our Bibles. Genesis, first book of the Bible. I mean, that's wild. That thing could be an incredible Netflix series. I mean, just, it's, it's just so, it's just the stuff, the patriarchs, you know, it just goes crazy, right? And you get to Exodus and you have this incredible beginning of, of God's emancipation of people that are in slavery. And this is, you have toads raining from the sky and all this. And then, but then you get to like chapter 20 of Exodus, and oftentimes what happens is it goes past 20, you get into this whole section, all these details about how this tent was supposed to be made, this thing called the tabernacle, like chapter after chapter of when you grab the orange thread, I mean, there's not orange, when you grab the purple thread and you weave it together, make this pomegranate, I mean, it's like detail after detail, and then what happens after you have seven chapters of that, then you have seven chapters of them actually making it, and then you get to Leviticus, and it begins with like, Law after law after law, holiness after, this is what you do if you have mold on your wall. This is what you do if you have mold on your skin. This, like, and so oftentimes people give up, but you know what it was all supposed to point to? The radical otherness of God and how far short of his glory we fall. And all of these things that God did to try to symbolize one day there's one coming that is gonna be the true tent that will, will welcome you. It'll be the true sacrifice. He'll be the true one that can cleanse anyone of any sickness. It's finally been revealed. The entire Bible pointed in that direction. And then verses 22 and 23, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That word all is beautiful. All, everyone. Anyone that believes. In this text, it uses the categories of Jew and Gentile. Gentile meaning non-Jew, so everyone. For all who believe. And why do we need it? Verse 23 is just summarizing this series of quotations Paul did earlier. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't mean you don't do beautiful, good, helpful, productive things. It means that it falls far short of his utter holiness. And then we get into verses 24 and 25. And what you see is an incredible trilogy of words. Justified, redemption, propitiation in each of these, what I'm trying to do today in taking Romans 3 and going through it in one sitting is is tricky, so I'm going to have to move quickly, but I do want to camp out in those three words briefly. Verse 24, and it are justified by his grace as a gift. Justified deals with our guilt before God. 
Each of these words deals with something that we need before God. Justified means to be declared righteous or to be right with God. The words justified and righteousness are, are synonyms, related terms. Um, and it occurs, I think, 60 times in Romans. It's one of the central concerns of the letter is something like this. How can sinners be right with the holy God? And there's really only two responses to that. I can try to obey enough that God would accept me or I can trust in what Christ has done and Jesus alone is my acceptance. Those are the, the, the two paths. You know, consider again what verse 20 says. It tries to clarify the path that we should take. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight because we just can't do it well enough. It's never complete enough. And one of the things that that, that does for us, that, that degree of clarity is really kindness to us. God is saying, stop trying. Stop trying to justify who you are. Stop trying to, to, to write yourselves through your achievements and your abilities. And it's actually freeing. You know, you think about how, con- how constantly we're trying to, to justify ourselves in the sight of others, our peers, our parents, our friends bosses. Sometimes ourselves, we want to feel right when we look in the mirror. And then for some of us before, before God, and it just never seems to work. I, I love how this was captured actually by Madonna, uh, Taylor Swift before Taylor Swift. Um, and how, how heavy self-justification is. This comes out of a 1991 Vanity Fair interview. I mean, she really was the top of her game. Movies and music videos and records and fame and all those things. And this is what she says. She goes, I have an iron will. And all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear. I push past one spell uh, of it and I discover myself as a special human being and then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. And I find a way to get myself out of that again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me, pushing me. Or Rocky, Rocky fans? Come on, it's like the greatest movie series ever created in the history of the world. You didn't know what to do because you're like, you can do one of them preacher things. I'm going to say, yeah, it's great and soup. It's terrible. No, it's amazing. All of you should watch it, I think. I haven't watched it in a while, but I think it's pretty good. All right, so Rocky is the story, if you don't know, of a down-on-his-luck, over-the-hill boxer from Philly. Just his whole life has just been a punching bag for others to try to get ready to fight in important fights. And, and he, through, through some crazy situation, he gets the opportunity to, to fight the, the reigning heavyweight champion, Apollo Creed. And so he's, you know, he's going through the movie, he's training, he's having all sorts of self-doubts, all sorts of things. And he, he has this, there's a scene where he has this conversation with what I think is now his wife, might have been his girlfriend named Adrian. Okay, and this is, this is what he says as he gets ready to, to fight Apollo, who everybody says, you're just going to get destroyed. He says, I was a nobody. It's hard because you want to do it with Rocky's, you know, like the way he says it, right? I'm not going to do that. I, um, <laughs> I was a nobody. It really don't matter if I lose this fight. It really don't matter if this guy opens up my head either. Because all I want to do is go the distance. Nobody's ever gone the distance with Creed. And if I can go the distance and that bell rings and I'm still standing, I'm going to know for the first time in my life that I weren't just some bum from the neighborhood. Oh, if I can go 15 rounds 
And I'm, it doesn't matter how beat up I am. It doesn't matter, but if I can do that finally, in that moment, my, my, I'll be justified. I'll be righted. Like, I'll, I'll know that I'm not just a bum. This morning as I was reading this text, um, just getting ready to preach it, verse 28, I kept messing up as I was reading it. I kept adding a word that totally changes the meaning. For we hold that no one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Do you hear it? Oh, I screwed it up so many times. For we hold that no one is justified apart from works of the law. But that word no isn't in there. That's not in there, and that changes. For we hold, listen, let me, let me try to get it right. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So we have this default in us that thinks it's always about how we perform, what we do, the rules we follow, how we achieve that is going to ride us before God. And what this text is saying is it will never happen. You can achieve such great things in this world and still have fears of mediocrity but there's one that has come to be our justification. We're justified by his grace as a gift. That's the, the verse as it continues in this idea. The, the word gift means freely. We're justified by his grace, his unearned, unmerited kindness, freely. We don't have to perform for it. We can't achieve it. What we can do is receive it. Already mentioned an 80s movie. Let me give you another one, the movie The Mission. It takes place in um, 1750s Paraguay or so. It's uh, about a Jesuit priest. Jeremy Lyons is the actor, and he's going into the middle of Paraguay to seek to convert the Guarani to Christianity. So he's going to, to find a, a people group there to, to lead them to Christ. It also stars Robert De Niro, who um, was a really wicked guy in this movie. He was uh, an enslaver, a slave trader. He would go in to the Guarani as some of the people that he actually went to capture and then sell them off as, as slaves. Very wicked, very, very wicked. He uh, is full of rage and anger. He's a murderer. Um, at one point, he actually kills his, uh, his half-brother. And then at some point, he gets overwhelmed with guilt. He just breaks under, under this, the, the, the revealing of his, his deep sin and Jeremy Lyons, this Jesuit priest, comes to him and says, here's what you need to do. You need to practice penance. You need to go through a bunch of things that will then absolve you of your guilt so that you can, can lose this burden that you're, that you're carrying of your, of your sin. And so what they do is they actually take a net made of really thick ropes and they put a bunch of his armor into this big ball that's full of, of armor and swords and all sorts of stuff. And then they attach a rope to it and they tie it around his shoulders. And they say, what you need to do is actually march all of this back to the Guarani. And so he begins to go through the, the jungle and you can imagine just how difficult that journey would be anyway, but now you're carrying hundreds of pounds of armor behind you. And he just keeps going and going and going. And then, you know, at some, some moment, he comes up to this waterfall, this big, giant waterfall, and he has to climb the face of the rocks on the side of the waterfall to be able to continue to get where he needs to go. And so he's fighting his way up this rock wall, and there's multiple times where he just about falls, you know, loses grip. He's going to get drugged down by this weight and drown in the, the river that's beneath it. But he finally gets over the edge, and, and he sees there's some of the Guarani people that are, that are there. And one of them grabs a knife. And when you're watching this, what you think is they're going to come and, and act vengeance on, on Robert De Niro, on, on, on his character, because of what he's done. But he actually comes over. It's this beautiful scene. They come over and they cut the rope. This idea of like, you're free from this. 
It's not enough, though. De Niro, he grabs the rope, and he ties it back together, and he keeps trying to drag it again. So, so one of them comes over, he cuts the rope, and then he takes this, this, this giant ball of, of sin that it represents, this reminder of the man that he was and the things that he's done, and he takes it and he kicks it over the edge of the, the waterfall and it hits the, the river and it just sinks to the bottom. This text is bidding us to come with all of this weight, all of this record, all of this sin, all of this falling short. And not to do penance, not to drag it through your life. I'll make it up, I promise. I'll do better next time. I'll do better, I promise. But to see Christ upon the cross, just sever the rope. And then take that ball of sin and chuck it into the deepest ocean where it will descend down and you will never see it again. That's the first word. One of us needs to speed this up a little bit, I recognize. Let me give you the next word, redeemed. It deals with our bondage under sin. Justification is about our guilt from sin. This deals with our bondage to sin. We're under sin. To be redeemed, it was, a, it was actually a, a marketplace word. It meant to, to add a personal cost to purchase the freedom of someone else, to, to purchase the freedom of something that had gone into like, if, if it was home or property, it had been foreclosed on, you know, person had to clear. This is somebody else coming and saying, I'm gonna spend my resources to ransom this back. And that's what this text says, that we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We're rescued out of captivity to sin. We're under sin. We get rescued out of it. 1987, 18-month-old baby Jessica fell 22 feet into a Texas well. And this captured, I think I was 10 at the time. I still remember this. It was viral before viral was viral. It was on every news station, constant reports on what's going on and what you watched for 55 hours. People from all walks of life coming to try to figure out how can we rescue this child that is down into this well. And after 55 hours, she was freed. It was absolutely stunning. Here's why I bring this up. She was absolutely helpless to save herself. There was nothing she could do to change her condition. Her life was 100% in the hands of her rescuers. They paid the price of their time, the risking of their own lives to go down into the, like, they, they paid the price so that she might have her life back. It is the same for us, but much more glorious. Jesus paid the price for our rescue. He's our redeemer. That's what we're saying. We call him our redeemer. He rescues us out of sin. Last week, I mentioned the conversion story of Charles Wesley. He was a preacher and a missionary and a hymn writer. And he wrote a song two days after he was converted called, And Can It Be That I Should Gain? Let me just reread one of the verses because it's capturing this picture of being under sin and being rescued out of it. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. This is born like this. I didn't seek God. I didn't fear God. Thine eyes diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. I'm in this cell of my own captivity. I can't see God beyond it. I woke the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Those are redemption lyrics. That's what Wesley is singing. That's the praise of a heart that's no longer under sin. Let's finish out with the third word. 
are justified by his grace freely through the redemption, the purchase that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. That's a big word that holds a lot of meaning. Propitiation deals with the sentence that our guilt deserves. So as you think about this text again, we are guilty before God for how we have lived. So we need to be justified. We need the declaration, not guilty. But what we also need is propitiation. We need the sen- propitiation has to do with the sentence. So it's like you can imagine a courtroom scene where you're found of a crime and you're said guilty. But then there's the sentencing. The wrath of God is the very right measured response of his holiness to our rebellion. It's the sentence in which we sit under outside of Christ. And what this text is saying, as bad as the cure is, the solution is better. That Christ has become our propitiation. We first mentioned the wrath of God back in Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 18, that the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. We saw it again in Romans 2, that we're storing up wrath from God on the day of judgment. Um, uh, wrath is, is, is already uncomfortable. The wrath of God is often very underplayed or even rejected. And, and we say things like, God is, is loving, right? Um, yes. And God is merciful, and God is gracious, and God is compassionate, and God is kind. God is also just, because God is also holy. And what we have in the work of Christ is holding those two things together simultaneously all the time, never severing the little hyphen that goes between the words holy love. In... um, the Old Testament, first two-thirds of your Bible, the word propitiation is often translated as mercy seat. And some scholars would actually argue for that translation here in, in chapter three of Romans to connect us back to what Christ is actually doing. Let me read it using that phrase. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a mercy seat. The mercy seat... What the mercy seat was, was the golden lid that went on the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Testimony. It was a box that inside included three different things that were all uh, markers of humanity's rebellion to God. So what you had was the, the Ten Commandments or the law of God, his righteous rules of which we break. You had a jar of what was called manna. It was this jar of, of food that God gave to his people miraculously when he helped them escape, he helped them, he, he emancipated them from slavery to Egypt, and so he would feed them with this stuff called manna. They'd wake up in the morning, there'd be all this food, and you know what? They, the people grumbled about it. They said, we don't want this anymore. And then you, the third thing was the staff of Aaron, one of God's leaders, and the staff had budded. So what's interesting is you go back to all these stories, God gave his commands, which we broke, God gave the manna, which we rejected, and then God gave his leaders that we denied. And so inside the ark were all these ways that we say, God, your rules aren't right, your provision isn't enough, and your authority I'm rejecting. And so in that then would be the, the, the mercy seat would go on the top of this box, and then on top of the mercy seat were these golden cherubim, and they were supposed to be some sort of symbol to the, the holiness and purity of God. And then what happened is once a year, the, the, the high priest, he would go into where the ark was. It was known in the Holy of Holies. And the way this works, I mean, this probably makes conceptual sense. I won't give you all the details. But in the temple, the further in you went to the center, the closer it was supposed to be this earthly impression of what heaven was like. It was like where God dwelled. 
And in that place, the Ark of the Covenant, holding the, the ways, the, the testimonies of the things and how we have fallen short of the glory of God. And the high priest would go in once a year after going through this, this rigorous ceremony. He would go in with a rope around his waist in case he dropped dead and it, to be pulled out that they could yank him back out. He would go in and he would take blood of an offering. He would sprinkle it on top of the mercy seat. And the idea here is that as God would look down, instead of seeing the way we've broken his commands, the way we've rejected his provision, the way we've thrown off his authority, he would see the offering in our place, this propitiatory offering, this wrath-bearing offering. Here's the point. Jesus is our mercy seat. He is our justification. He is our redemption, and he is our mercy seat. He stands between our sin and the holiness of God. We might ask, like, why did Jesus have to die to save us? Why did he have to go to the cross? And it's because of verses like verse 26 that hold together two things that I don't know how, I can't think of a way that anyone else could ever hold these together other than God, that he is both just and justifier. He's not lowering his standards. That's the last question of this chapter, verse 31. Do we, do we overthrow the law of God? By no means we fulfill it. We're showing it so high that God himself had to come in flesh and live flawlessly and perfectly. Not fail one time. That's how Christ came to fulfill the law. That we might have a righteousness that exceeds not through our doing, but through our believing. That he would be just though, but what do we do with all the rebellion? Jesus became the one that was judged. That's how God remained just. But also God became the justifier. That Jesus was the judged instead of us. We're almost done. John Piper preaching on these verses, asked this question, did Christ die for us or for God? It's a really great question. And the answer is, is both, wonderfully both. But in these verses, the emphasis is, is, is Christ died for, for God to show off his glory, that his righteous standards might be revealed, that his tender mercy might be seen, and it's actually incredible news for us. It's this, God does it for all from first to last. The miracle of salvation is that we don't do anything. We, we just need the miracle. See, our only response to all of this is it, it says it in this text about five different times, faith. Believe. Just believe. That he is the one that makes us right with God, that he is the one that purchases us back, that he is the one that took what I deserved all to the glory of God. God, God did it all. God did it all. We don't have to leave this place wondering, what do I have to do to be right with God? Here's what it is. Believe in the work of Jesus Christ. It is Christ who pardons. It is Christ who is condemned. It was Christ who, was re who redeems. It is Christ who robes us in his righteousness. We're not just merely forgiven. We're, we're seen as doing the very righteous things that Christ did because he robes us in his obedience and then stands between us as our mercy seat. I'll put the whole sermon, I'll put the whole text together with a phrase that came out of what was known as the Reformation. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And maybe you can help me with the end of this one. To the glory of God alone. That's it. Because Christ is that good. His work is that complete. Let's believe. Heavenly Father, 
through the power of the Spirit, might you cause Christ to come alive to us, whether for the first time or the 10,000th time. Oh, we so quickly default to getting the verse wrong, and we think that it is only through our efforts and our labors, or maybe we, Christ does 50% and we do 50, or maybe he does 90 and we do 10, but God, it is only and all through the work of Jesus. And so, Spirit, would you, would you put the spotlight on him? From first to last, we are saved by the work of Christ alone. What joy, what freedom, what confidence, what assurance. What reason to worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.